0: I I do a podcast.
1: I'm not not interested in your podcast.
0: Folks, these are are wolves. Truth be told, I, I oftentimes lay awake at night trying to figure out how I can get rid of wolves in the church. We are unabashedly, unashamedly Clarkian. And so the next few statements that I'm going to make, I'm probably going to step on all of the Vantilian toes at the same time. And this is what we do at Simple Ref around the radio. You know, we are polemical and polarizing Jesus style.
2: I would first say that to characterize what we do as fashion is itself fashion. It's not hate, it's history. It's not bashing. it's the Bible.
1: Jesus said, Woe to you and men speak well of you, for their fathers used to treat the false prophets in the same way, as opposed to blessed are you when you have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness.
0: It is on, we're taking the gloves off, it's time to battle. Alright, want to welcome everybody back to Semper Reformanda Radio. My name is Tim and I am going to be your host for today. I want to remind everybody that we are part of a network and there's, I believe, 10 podcasts on the network, if, I, if my math is correct. Um, so let me just go ahead and play this little uh, promotional clip that Tim Hurd put out so you can hear all the podcasts.
1: This podcast is a member of the Bible Thumping Wingnut Network.
0: All right, welcome everybody to another podcast episode with Semper Reformanda Radio. Hi, welcome to
2: Theology Gals.
0: Welcome everyone to the Logical Belief Ministries podcast.
1: Well, welcome to School of Biblical Harmonetics. Welcome everybody to Grappling
0: with Theology. What is going on guys? Shine as lights coming at you. Well, welcome to Slick Answers. Good evening and welcome to the Conversations from the porch.
1: Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the Bible Thumping Wingnut Podcast. <laughs> the Bible Thumping Wingnut Network. Ten podcasts, one network. Check them out. BibleThumpingWingnut.com
0: Alright, so that is... Those are all the podcasts on there. I, I noticed that Len Pettis, I believe, was the voice for Wrath and Grace. And, uh... Now, I just want to say that, uh... We really, really appreciate Len Pettis. Uh He is, I think, taking some time off for family stuff. I know that he got a new job, and I think he's—I think he was moving or something like that. But uh, I, I know that he's really busy. And uh, Len, I, I really appreciate you, man. I just want you to know that. And I uh, also want to say thanks to Tim Hurd. These guys put in a lot of work, a lot of uh, a lot of hard work to make the network what it is. And uh, we're just grateful to be a part of it. We're grateful for these guys. I heard uh, Tim Hurd's last episode about him and his wife and just want to let them know that we are praying for them and also encourage our listeners to pray for Tim and his wife as well. And uh been very encouraged with, uh, with his testimony from the last episode. Uh, it was very, very encouraging to hear that, so... Uh, love you guys, and uh, you know we are praying for the best for you. So today we have with us our resident expert in Roman Catholicism, Timothy Kaufman, and uh, and this guy is awesome. I mean, I, I just can't say enough good things about Tim Kaufman. He is a he is a he he writes a lot, and you need to check out his blog. The blog is uh it's titled Out of His Mouth. And it's uh, the URL is whitehorseblog.com, and uh, he writes a lot of stuff about eschatology, Roman Catholicism, and um, and a lot of stuff that pertains to history. So it's very interesting stuff. I've really benefited from it. I I can't say enough about him. Go check it out. Uh, but we are going to be continuing in our series on Mother Mary, and, and the the series is called. Roman Catholics and their Queen and just for continuity sake I'm going to put a part one part two part three and part four I think that we're going to get probably four episodes out of out of this but uh, the last two episodes that we did were episodes 39 and episodes 40 we did two episodes on different topics in between that uh, one with Doug Dalma And then another episode just uh, coming out in support of Pulpit and Pen and JD Hall uh, regarding the Hank Hanegraaff stuff because, well, as a as a former Roman Catholic, I was I was pretty triggered by the stuff that uh, I was hearing from Hank Hanegraaff, and uh, so we we kind of needed to do that in a timely manner. But uh, let me go ahead and pull up the uh, the show notes from the last one and. Episode 39, uh, Timothy Kaufman gave a basic overview of Mary and we addressed uh, Mary as Queen Mother and Mary as Theotokos. And today we're going to get into uh, the sinlessness of Mary. But last week, or not last week, but at the last uh, episode in this series, which was episode 40, we talked about uh, Mary as... Uh, Mary as the Ark of the New Covenant. Now, th- this may th- this terminology may be a, a little bit unfamiliar to some evangelicals. I mean, it's uh, th- there's a lot of evangelicals out there that really aren't familiar with uh, the Reformation or really aren't familiar with Roman Catholicism and uh, and. So you may be unfamiliar with these terms, but go back and listen to that episode because uh, Tim Kaufman, what, what he does is he points out that from uh, from Mary as uh, the the prefigure prefiguration of uh, the Ark of the New Covenant, from that from that idea from that doctrine, uh, the the Roman Catholic uh, uses that as the basis for uh, supporting other Marian Dogma, such as uh, like the sin the sinlessness of Mary, which is what we're going to be getting into today. But before I, uh, so we're we're going to get into that. But let me let me go ahead and give uh, Tim Kaufman an opportunity to say hello, and uh, and just ask him how he's doing. I'm we're glad that he's here. And then and then after that, I have a question for you, Tim. Well, hello.
2: Thank you very much for having me on again. I'm certainly enjoying this series and. Uh, it's always a, a pleasure to be here with you and as we we're, we're getting ready as you mentioned to talk about the sinlessness of mary and as i mentioned last week the reason we wanted to start by refuting the uh, roman catholic belief that mary is prefigured in the ark of the new covenant was because the firm belief held by roman catholics that the ark of the covenant prefigured mary is the basis that they use for these other doctrines about the assumption of mary her perpetual virginity and her sinlessness and so it was important last week to show why we, we it can be demonstrated from the early church fathers that they did not believe that mary was prefigured by the ark of the old covenant and they did not identify mary as the ark of the new covenant it's just a, it's so important to deal with that first before you get into all the others because uh, so much flows from that so that's what we wanted to cover today and i'm just very glad to be back and uh, i hope everybody's enjoying the series as much as we are
0: well i i do too I, I second that and i really am enjoying this uh series i'm i'm really learning a lot from it um and so my question i had a question that uh, I was listening to the to the last episodes, and I, I know that you, we talked about this last week as well um, in, in our conversation, but I wanted to ask you about you referenced in our previous episode, you referenced a Roman Catholic apologist by the name of Steve Ray, and Steve Ray uh, you said something about him having an article in which he cites uh, historians. Um, not historians, but he cites uh, historical figures in support of the views of the Roman Catholic position. And I, I know that, you know, Rome tries to position itself as the historical church and likes to make the claim that we can't go past the 16th uh, uh, the 16th century. But you, you're showing that that's not the case, So we can take our faith all the way back to the early church fathers. And so my my question is when Steve Ray or guys like Steve Ray who are Roman Catholic apologists are they just are they cherry picking the stuff that they want to show are, are they it seems to me like they are in some sense a historical revisionist because they're they're trying to cite church fathers who they would say would agree with their position and clearly what you've shown is that they don't agree with their position so I'm just wondering if there's maybe some historical revisionism going on, or if there's uh, if there's some cherry picking, and uh, if you could go ahead and comment on that. Well, as, as I mentioned last week, that
2: you know people like Scott Hahn and Steve Ray know very well that they don't have the evidence they need from the first three centuries to show that the early church believed that Mary was the Ark of the New Covenant and that she was prefigured by the Ark of the Old Covenant, and so. They have to rely on very, very sketchy sources if they want to show evidence before Nicaea, the Council of Nicaea in 325. They have to show they have to use uh, very, very questionable, and dubious sources in order to prove it. And so, what I thought would be worthwhile before we get into Mary's sinlessness, because it has everything to do with her identification as the Ark. Uh, was to revisit some of the evidence that is used by Roman Catholics to prove that Mary was believed by the early church to be prefigured by the Ark of the Old Covenant. And as I mentioned last week, you have church father after church father after church father. Even after the fourth century, even Pope Gregory the Great thought that the Ark obviously prefigured the church. Uh, And so you have so many different opinions in the old, uh, from, from the early church that, you know, Jesus was prefigured by the ark, the church was prefigured by the ark, the consecrated virgin was, or, you know, the, the person who had opted for a life of celibacy was prefigured by the ark, you know, Christ's tomb was uh, prefigured by the ark, the the individual believer is prefigured by the ark, all these different things. And one thing that's consistent in all of them is that None of them say that Mary was prefigured by the ark until you get to the latter part of the fourth century. Now, in order to prove that this is an apostolic doctrine, they have to come up they have to find some way to bridge that gap between the apostles and the actual evidence we have from church fathers who believe that Mary was prefigured by the Ark of the Old Covenant. And so I wanted to review a couple of them. These all show up in Steve Ray's defense. of uh, of Mary uh, being prefigured by the Ark and that the patristics all held it. Uh, As I showed last week, there's just abundant evidence that they didn't believe it. But when you get to the latter part of the fourth century, suddenly uh, it's all the rage. But I'll just give you a couple examples. This is one from, uh, let's see, we're going to look at three. We're going to actually look at four very quickly here. Uh, These are all contained in Steve Ray's defense of the patristic support for Mary as the Ark of the New... Of the New Covenant. And so he uses Dionysius of Alexandria that's from the late second century to uh, 264 AD is when he died. Uh, Gregory Thaumaturgus, also known as Gregory the Wonder Worker from 213 to 270 AD. So we're talking third century here. And then Methodius of Olympus who died in 310 AD and then Ephraim the Syrian who died in 373 AD. And all these men are used as evidence for early belief in the typology of the Ark that is referring to Mary. So I want to just revisit some of these because there is, let's just look at this letter from Dionysius of Alexandria refuting Paul of Samosata. And uh, in this letter, uh, Dionysius of Alexandria is said to say that, As Christ our priest has not chosen by hand of man, so neither was his tabernacle framed by men, but was established by the Holy Ghost and by the power of God, and that tabernacle protected to be had in everlasting remembrance. Mary, God's virgin mother. Okay, and then in another place, not in a servant did he dwell, but in his holy tabernacle, not made with hands, which is Mary, the mother of God. So this is all alleged to be, you know, mid third century from Paul of Samosata. Well, what's interesting about this particular, because he calls it out, uh, you know, Steve Ray calls out this particular citation. Here's the problem. For the first problem is that in this letter, Mary is not identified as the Ark, but as the tabernacle. Both times she's identified as the tabernacle. But what's worse is that this is considered to be a forgery, <laughs> okay? Uh, Cardinal Newman was this famous Anglican Bishop that converted to Roman Catholicism and he became a great apologist for Roman Catholicism and eventually made it uh, uh, as a cardinal in in the papal court and he acknowledges in his uh in, in his works that this was actually a forgery and it's not really from that time frame and so it's not really evidence of uh, an anti view by Diane Dion- Dionysius of Alexandria that <laughs> Mary was the Ark of the Covenant. It's a forgery. Okay. Yeah. So there's two problems with it. One, it doesn't even say she's the Ark and two, it's known to be a forgery. So we'll just, but, but you know what? I think that Steve Ray knows that, but he needed evidence from the early church. And so he got it. The next one is from Gregory, <laughs> the Wonderworker, from Gregory, thermiturgist, thermiturgist. And, um uh, his, uh, He was from 213 to 270 AD, so about the same time frame as Dionysius of Alexandria, and he says, for the Holy Virgin is in truth an ark wrought with gold both within and without that has received the whole treasury of the sanctuary, and uh, that's from his first homily. The problem is that the homilies that are attributed to Thaumaturges are considered even by Roman Catholics to be spurious. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about uh, Father Livius a little bit later, and, and I'll, I'll refer to his work when we get there. But even he acknowledged that this was of doubtful genuineness. And uh, Philip Schaff and his Antonicene Fathers series lists this uh, this particular work by Gregory under his spurious works. Spurious means that they're they're not believed to be legitimate. They're not actually believed to be from that person or even from that era. You know, why would Steve Ray include that, knowing that it's it's not even genuine? Uh, so let's go on to Methodius of Olympus and um, uh, of Olympias and uh, Methodius of Olympus died in 310 AD. So this would be some pretty solid evidence of an intimacy belief in Mary as the Ark of the new covenant. And he says, for if to the Ark, which was the image and type of thy sanctity, such honor was paid of God, that to no one but the priestly order was the ax- was the access to open it or ingress allowed to behold it, the veil separating it off and keeping the vestibule as that of a queen. What and what sort of uh, veneration is due to thee from us who are of creation the least to thee who art indeed a queen? Okay, so this is Methodius Olympus, Oration Concerning Simeon and Anna, Chapter 5. Well, the problem here is that Methodius's oration is so heavily and hopelessly compromised that it can't be trusted and and even even scholars recognize that you can't use him to justify these roman catholic beliefs because the the document is corrupted beyond any realistic guarantee of antinocene authenticity now what's what's interesting about this and i would encourage our, our listeners to go check it out that is from the oration Concerning Simeon and Anna, chapter 5, where he goes off on this huge tangent about Mary being this Ark, and she's the queen, and and just as the Ark was venerated and can't be looked into, should be venerated and cannot be looked into, but the problem is, in chapter 1, that is the part of this that is not considered to be compromised, he actually identifies Jesus as the Ark <laughs> of, the, of the New Covenant. He says, uh, No second time is an Uzzah invisibly punished for daring to touch what may, not, what may not be touched. For God himself invites us, and who will stand And who will stand hesitating with fear? He says, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden. Who then will not run to him? This is, this is Methodius of Olympus quoting Christ and seeing him as the manifestation of the ark whereas the original ark could not be touched christ himself can be and that's the difference now why on earth would he use the 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 typology of the ark to say look the ark of the old covenant couldn't be touched but christ can and then later on in chapter 5 say the ark of the covenant could not be touched and therefore mary cannot it's it's a ridiculous uh, inconsistency, and it shows that this the the document that's being cited here, the oration concerning Simeon and Anna, is not considered an authentic document. And then the uh, the final one is also cited by uh, by Ray as Ephraim the Syrian. And and I want to read this to you without the editorial notes, and then I want to read it to you with their editorial editions, just to show how hard they have to try to make there be some evidence that the early church (laughs) believed that mary was the ark of the new covenant so so i'm going to read it to you without the uh, editorial notes the rib that was drawn out of adam the wicked one drew out the heart of adam there arose from the rib a hidden power which cut off satan as dagon for in that ark a book was hidden That cried and proclaimed the conqueror. Now that's a reference to the time when the ark was actually taken by the Philistines and it was put in the uh, in the same temple as Dagon, and Dagon and Dagon kept on being knocked over. But there's no reference in here of Mary, and there's no reference in here about uh, about this being a type of Mary. And yet what happens is you have this citation where it says, there arose from the rib. They have to put in parentheses, uh, that is, Mary. <laughs> so there arose from the rib, Mary, a hidden power which cut off Satan as Dagon. For in that ark, Mary again, a book was hidden that cried and proclaimed the conqueror. You know, you know all that Ephraim was doing was talking about inside the ark was uh, was a document. Uh, that that actually foretold Christ crushing the serpent's head and and this is so interesting that's a reference to Genesis 3:15 mm-hmm. even pope john paul ii acknowledged that that is a reference to christ and not to mary that's right. from john paul ii's general audience january 24 1996 paragraph 3 so so here you have uh, steve ray and actually he's quoting from father livius again <laughs> who's saying that okay this quote from Ephraim the Syrian, it's got to be a reference to Mary. And so they have to actually pencil it in. And and it's actually a reference to the book of the law that proclaims that Christ would come and crush the serpent's head, the seed of the woman, and that John Paul II acknowledges, yeah, yeah, Genesis 3.15 prophesies Jesus. It's not a reference to Mary. So, I mean, they're, they're, it's, it's like they're stretching it constantly to the breaking point. But the, the problem is that all we have to do is actually read what Ephraim said when he talked about the typology of the ark. He said, uh, this is from uh, Ephraim on Exodus chapter 37. He says, and Bezalel made an ark of undecaying wood a type of the body of Emmanuel, which is incorruptible and not soiled by sin. So here's Ephraim Syrian when he's actually talking about the typology of the ark and doesn't have to be edited by the Roman Catholic apologist. He says that the ark is a type of Christ. <laughs> you know, so so that's just one thing after another. And I want to add one more thing here because uh, Steve Ray also added a note in there about Hesychius. And it's it's H E S Y C H I U S, and it's Hesius of Jerusalem. And he says, hey, he said that Mary was a type of the Ark. I mean, the Ark was a type of Mary. And he he lists his, he lived around 300 AD. So here you have Antonicene evidence, right? Uh, Antonicene being before the time of Nicaea. Well, the Roman Catholic Encyclopedia, under the entry on Hesius of Jerusalem, says, he was a Presbyterian exegete, probably of the fifth century. Oh, nothing boy. is certain. Nothing certain is known as to the dates <laughs> of his birth and his death, or indeed concerning the events of his life. So, so I want you to think about. I mean, and I want to really encourage the listeners: go out there and download this evidence that Steve Ray compiled to show that the early church believed that Mary was the Ark of the New Covenant, and and listen to it. last week's episode, all the church fathers we quoted that believed that. It was not Mary. It was something else. And just look how much he has to stretch the early church to close a 300-year gap to prove that this is an apostolic teaching. And it's just one thing after another. It's forgeries, disputed documents, creative editing. Uh, creative revisionism <laughs> in order to just somehow get some evidence before the Council of Nicaea that this was broadly held by the church. And the fact is, it wasn't. The Ark is a late fourth century novelty. And as as I've said uh, in multiple uh, podcasts now, that we do not have to take the Roman Catholic arguments lying down. We need to call them out for what they are. And Steve Ray has created a fraudulent reconstruction of history in order to prove something that he knows is not true. The early church did not teach that Mary was the Ark of the new covenant, but he is bound by his teaching authority. That is Roman Catholicism to teach otherwise, because he, he, he has to teach that Mary was considered the Ark of the new covenant, even though the evidence, it's an avalanche of evidence that shows that it just isn't true.
0: Right. Yeah.
2: And, and yet, because it's the Roman Catholic position, he's got to defend it. It's not an enviable position to be in. Just like I said of Scott Hahn last week when he tried to use Hippolytus, and then Hippolytus himself says that the Ark actually prefigured Christ himself and Christ's body. And, and it's not until the fifth century that Scott Hahn can actually find any evidence at all. And the evidence he found was that, uh, you know, you know, the patriarch of Uh, of antioch thought that mary was prefigured by the tabernacle you know that is how intellectually vacuous the roman catholic argument for mary as the ark of the new covenant is and when we get into her sinlessness it just gets even worse and and i want i just can't emphasize enough these teachings are not apostolic and roman catholicism has created a lie and just like the mormons they now have to defend the lie and they'll define defend it till the end because Their whole, all their security, all their salvation is wrapped up in the church being right. And so they have to defend it at all costs. And it's just absolutely a fraud. And historically, just it cannot be substantiated.
0: Yeah, you you know, you just uh, said just like the Mormons. And it's funny, as you were going through that, that's exactly what I was thinking. I was just thinking about how there's a tremendous amount of intellectual dishonesty that is required in, in order to suppress the obvious truth. And distort these things and I I was thinking about Mormonism because I have family members who are Mormon and uh, and I was just thinking about how they they have no they have no evidence for any of the the historicity of of their claims and you, you know they talk about cities like Jershaw, Bountiful, Manti, Zarahemla that were great civilizations in the Americas and they have to they have to grasp at straws to try to substantiate their claims And they have to rewrite history and they've been shown to be wrong multiple times and this is this is what false religions do and you know you said there's no there's no history for it there's no uh, there's no apostolic history for it and uh, and you know there's no there's no biblical basis for that so with that let's uh, let's go ahead and get into uh, the sinlessness of mary i know that this is th- and it's funny because this is where a lot of uh, protestants just want to jump to in, in their in their talks with roman catholicism but we we laid out the, the the groundwork in the last two episodes and so now we're getting into whether or not mary was sinless uh and i i know uh, that she uh there you know that they claim that she is the Immaculate Conception—that she was born without sin—and so let's um, let's go ahead and get into that. Okay, let's uh,
2: let's get into that indeed. So uh, we're going to now turn to 1854 and the proclamation by Pope Pius IX called *Ineffabilis Deus*, which is uh, the proclamation that was made that it is a, an apostolic doctrine and a divinely revealed truth that Mary was conceived without sin and what that means is that at the moment of her conception by an act of god's grace uh, they will tell you this and this is this is important because we're going to get to uh, uh we're going to get up to into a little bit of this uh, later on in this podcast but they would say that all of the benefits of Christ's death were applied to Mary at that singular instant of her conception so that she was not only saved from her sins but saved from sinning but it was all by the merits of the cross and and that is important because roman oftentimes we find protestants will argue against roman catholics and say well mary calls jesus her savior and therefore she must have been sinful and roman catholics will say no no he saved her from sin and from sinning and so he is her savior all the merits of the cross were applied to her at the moment of her conception so that it would prevent her from sinning so that he really did save her from sinning now i I think that's silly because the angel told mary that uh that god was going to save his people from their sins (laughs) of course the roman catholics say well that's a general statement doesn't necessarily apply to mary but but let's go into the actual proclamation here um i'm only going to pull out uh, a small paragraph from in a fabulous deus, and it's the point where Pope Pius IX draws on the imagery of the Ark, and he says, in speaking of all, last week we introduced the episode by talking about all the different ways some, some late church and medieval church fathers saw Mary prefigured in almost everything in the Old Testament, and so Pius IX has recited that a little bit, and he says, in such allusions, the fathers taught that the exalted dignity of the mother of God, her spotless innocence and her sanctity unstained by any fault in a wonderful manner. In like manner did they use the words of the prophets to describe this wondrous abundance of divine gifts and the original innocence of the virgin of whom Jesus was born. They celebrated the August virgin as the spotless dove, as the holy Jerusalem, as the exalted throne of God, as the ark and house of holiness which eternal wisdom built, and that as queen, who abounding in delights and leaning on her beloved, came forth from the mouth of the Most High, entirely perfect, beautiful, most dear to God, and never stained with the least blemish. Okay, so that's uh, that, that's the, what happens in a in a proclamation like this from a pope is that he'll go through all the arguments, and one of the arguments, obviously, is that Mary was prefigured as the Ark, and uh, the Ark was actually a type that points us to Mary. That is the Ark of the New Covenant. So, what I want to get to next is say that let's let's read the actual proclamation from uh, from the from the document itself, and the the proclamation is he he claims pope pius ix claims that this had been always taught by the church and this is what he what he he proclaimed in the document and indeed this is quoting from uh, pius ix and indeed less illustrious documents of venerable antiquity of both the eastern and the western church very forcibly testify that this doctrine of the Immaculate Conception of the Most Blessed Virgin, which was daily more and more splendidly explained, stated, and confirmed by the highest authority, teaching, zeal, knowledge, and wisdom of the Church, and which was disseminated among all peoples and nations of the Catholic world in a marvelous manner, this doctrine always existed in the Church as a doctrine that has been received from our ancestors, And that has been stamped with the character of revealed doctrine for the church of Christ, watchful guardian that she is and defender of the dogmas deposited with her never changes anything, never diminishes anything, never adds anything to them. But with all diligence, she treats the ancient documents faithfully and wisely. Okay, so that's uh, that's Pius the Ninth's summary statement about why. It is believed and now infallibly taught infallibly allegedly taught by roman catholicism that mary was sinless and and it's important to remember that we're, we're seeing all these types we're supposed to see all these types in the old testament and they're all supposed to point to mary and they all show that mary was prefigured in all these things and she was prefigured in so su- it was such a degree of holiness and by such holy articles as the tabernacle and the ark that she must necessarily be sinless. But what we're going to show is that expert Roman Catholic Mariologists acknowledge that her sinlessness does not emerge as an idea until the latter part of the fourth century, and that it was a novelty at that time when it did. So, uh, so let's, I wanna show you why Roman Catholic apologists have such a conundrum with Pius the Ninth's statement that this has always been held and believed by the entire church and what i want to do is to walk through the various church fathers interpretation of bible verses and show that they recognized just as we do that the biblical testimony shows that mary was a sinner and i I know that, that 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 sounds absolutely anathema to roman catholics but remember, it's their pope who said that the, all the documents, the churches from the earliest days, East and West, forcibly testify to the sinless immaculacy of Mary, and it, it just isn't true. And we're going to prove that today.
0: Yeah, you know, it, it's it's funny because it, at the moment you said that, I I, I sort of cringed because I, I was thinking, them's them's fighting words, you know, with uh, <laughs> with Roman Catholicism, <laughs> and uh, right. yeah.
2: So, well, my challenge in response, if Roman Catholics think those are fighting words, then let me just tell you from the perspective of Semper Reformando Radio that inventing history is fighting words to us. And if you want to prove that Mary's immaculate conception was an apostolic doctrine, then show taught by the apostles instead of coming to us with fabricated documents, forged documents, spurious documents and highly edited documents that are <laughs> changed to make the early church fathers say something they weren't saying. I mean, it's a simple request. You, Amen. You, you, Roman Catholics claim to be the, the guardians of the truth, and they come to us with lies and expect us to bend the knee to Rome because a lie, it's still taught by the church, and Jesus would never lead his church into error. Now, you know what? I agree with that. Jesus would never lead his church into error, and that's why we know that Roman Catholicism is not his church. Right. So uh, Amen. So let's start with, I'm going to start with a late, a late fourth century church father because he says something quite interesting. And this shows that, that John Chrysostom, who, who lived from 349 to 407 AD, he did not seem to be aware that there was an ancient apostolic teaching that Mary was sinless. And we know this from his interpretation of um the visitation. And this is the, this is the point where, uh, this is where Gabriel announces to Mary that she is going to have the Christ child. She'll bear the Christ child. And so John Chrysostom is asking this question why everybody knows that uh, that, that uh, the angel went to visit Mary before she conceived, but didn't explain this to Joseph until after. Mary had conceived, and he said, "Now, why is that? Why would he go to Mary first before the conception instead of after?" And his answer is very, very insightful. <laughs> now, it's, it's not insightful. I think it's just it's just conjecture, but it's it's insightful for it provides some insight for us into what his thinking was. Why then, it may be asked, did he, that is Gabriel, not so in the virgin's case also, that is, not visit her after the she had conceived already and declare the good tidings to her after the conception and here's here's john chrysostom's answer lest she should be in agitation and great trouble for it were likely that she not knowing the certainty might have even devised something amiss touching herself and have gone on to strangle or stab herself not enduring the disgrace now she who is of such perfect delicacy would even have been distracted with dismay at the thought of her shame, not expecting by whatever she might say to convince anyone who should hear of it. But that what had happened was adultery. So people are going to basically, so she basically says, you know, John Chrysostom saying she was so troubled, she might even kill herself. That's why the angel didn't wait till after the conception to inform her. Now, what's important here is that not only do Roman Catholics teach that Mary is sinless, but she was preserved from even the inclination to sin. That is uh, what they call concupiscence. Is she pre- prevented from sinning, but she's saved from even the inclination to sin. And yet here John Chrysostom, and we're going to get more from him that gets even more revealing. But but this is a very subtle statement, but it's a significant one that Mary would have been so troubled at at being pregnant and not understanding how or why that she might have gone and killed herself and Jesus with her. <laughs> you think you think yeah. about that. So because she <laughs> might commit heresy, that's just John John Chrysostom is saying she had to be told first because she might kill Jesus. Now that is not indicative of a church father who thought that Mary was preserved from the inclination to sin.
1: Right. Now yeah. that's
2: from that's from Chrysostom's homily on Matthew, its homily for paragraph 9. Okay, so what we're going to get into next is from origin and and this has to do with the sword of sorrow Now, Luke 2:35, Simeon prophesied that uh that Mary although Jesus would save his people uh Mary's heart would be pierced with a sword of sorrow and so the early church fathers were trying to figure out why uh, what was that sword of sorrow And the scripture doesn't identify for us what that sort of sorrow is. And so this is all speculation. But in their speculation, they revealed something that they believed to be true about Mary. That is, that she was sinful. And that sinfulness led her to doubt Christ's purpose. And this is from uh, Origen, homilies on Luke, chapters uh, 17-17. Uh, verses 6 chapters 17 of his homilies on Luke it's homily 17 uh, paragraph 6 and 7 he believed that the sword of sorrow that would pierce Mary's heart was the sword of being scandalized with doubt and unbelief that Jesus had come and really was who he said he was Uh, he says if she did not suffer scandal at the Lord's passion then Jesus did not die for her sins but if all have sinned and lack God's glory, but are justified by his grace and redeemed, then Mary too was scandalized at that time. That, he's quoted from Romans 3.23, you know, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And he, he's saying, oh, well, of, of course Mary was scandalized, just like everybody else was scandalized. And that scandal, manifest, scandal manifested as, as not only, um, it was doubt and unbelief. and And yet he's basically saying that Hey, if all have sinned, then Mary also was scandalized with the rest of the apostles. And so Origen is saying that Mary was sinful and that Jesus had to die for her sins, not to die to save her from sinning, but to die for the sin of unbelief. And, and later, Mary repented of that and was saved, of course, right? So yeah. we're gonna, that was from 185 to 254 AD. But what's, there's a thunderous silence from the rest of the world where nobody responds to Origen and said, oh, my goodness, uh, you've invented something new here. You, you're teaching an apostolic. <laughs> you're teaching something that's contrary to what the apostles taught. I mean, the, nobody responded to Origen and said, you're nuts. I can't believe you're saying that she sinned. So we, we go to Basil, and this is from letter 260. Paragraphs 8 and 9. He's also talking about the sword of sorrow from Luke 2.35. He says, uh, The Lord was bound to taste of death for every man, to become a propitiation for the world, and to justify all men by his own blood. Even you yourself, that is, he's addressing this to Mary. He says, Even you yourself, who has been taught from on high the things concerning the Lord, shall be reached by some doubt this is the sword." Okay, and uh, in that same, same section he says, Simeon indicates that after the offense at the cross of Christ a certain swift healing shall come from the Lord to the disciples and to Mary herself, confirming their heart of faith in Him. So what's really interesting here is that the swift healing comes to Mary after the cross. OK, the Roman Catholic teaching is that Mary was preserved by a miraculous act of God's grace in view of the cross at her conception. Basil says that she was reached with doubt and had to be healed of that by Christ's death afterwards. So, again, this is not stuff that speaks of early church fathers believing that it was an apostolic doctrine, that Mary had been conceived without sin and had not only been saved from sinning, but saved from the capacity to sin. Um, So we continue with Cyril of Alexandria, and this is from 376 to 444 AD, also speaking about this same passage. And and here uh, basically showing that that he thought that the sword was that Mary might not fully have believed the promises of God. So this is from uh, Sermons on Luke, Sermon 4 from Cyril of Alexandria. And Simeon further said to the Holy Virgin, Yea, a sword shall go through thy own soul also, meaning by the sword the pain which she suffered for Christ in seeing him whom she brought forth crucified, and not knowing at all that he would be more mighty than death and rise again from the grave. Nor mayest thou wonder that the Virgin knew this not, when we shall find even the holy apostles themselves with little faith thereupon. For verily the blessed Thomas, had he not thrust his hands into his side after the resurrection and felt also the prince of the males would have disbelieved the other disciples telling him. So now this is interesting. He said, Oh yeah, you know, Mary was going to be, uh, really she was going to doubt. She, she might not even know for sure that he was going to be mightier than death, that he would come back from the dead. I mean, she's just like Thomas. (laughs) You know, you can't imagine a worse apostle, you know, I guess you could say Judas, for example, and uh, you could say Judas would be a worse apostle to use, but here doubting Thomas, uh, they say, well, surely Mary doubted because, you know, even Thomas doubted for for crying out loud. So it's just very interesting that we have these early church fathers who are saying, oh yeah, the sort of sorrow is that Mary just didn't believe, didn't know, Jesus had to die for her sins, even the sin of unbelief that occurred at the cross. You know, this is, this is, I want you to keep in mind that remember what Pius IX said, that all the early church fathers forcibly testified to Mary's immaculacy and sinlessness. And yet, what do we have from the early church? We have the opposite. But testimony that she was sinful. Yeah. And it gets worse when we get into the wedding at Cana. John Chrysostom says some things that you just won't believe. But uh, but I want to pause for just a moment. And, uh, and I mentioned Thomas Livius, uh, Father Livius, earlier. And he wrote a book in 1893. And it was called The Blessed Virgin in the Fathers of the First Six Centuries. And he had to wrestle with the problem he found in Origen, Basil, and Cyril, who had interpreted the sword of sorrow to be unbelief and doubt. And it's interesting, there had been an appearance of Mary, and we've talked a little bit about the apparitions of Mary uh, on our various podcasts, but uh, the, in Roman Catholicism, there the are different times when uh, something that claims to be Mary appears to people who Roman Catholicism either, you know, later call saints or blessed or, or whatever, but they many of these have been considered to be legitimate. Some of them haven't received the stamp of approval of the church. But nevertheless, what's interesting here is that uh, Anne Catherine Emmerich in 1823 had been visited by something claiming to be Mary in 1823. And revealed to her that doubt and anxiety awoke in the mind of the Lord as he asked this terrible question. What is the benefit of this sacrifice? And that's from um, from uh, Livius. Uh, the Blessed Virgin in the Fathers of the first six centuries. And and what's interesting is Livius is struggling with the fact that he was expecting to go to the the early church fathers and find evidence of Mary's sinlessness, and instead he finds Origen, Basil, and Cyril, saying that she was sinful and doubted. And so what he does is he said, well, a vision of Mary in 1823 said even Jesus doubted. So maybe it's okay for Mary to doubt. It's very interesting that he would sooner have Jesus stumble into unbelief than have Mary be seen as a sinner in need of his forgiveness. Wow. And that is all you need to know about Roman Catholic <laughs> the, uh, adoration of Mary. They would have Jesus doubt. Wow. Or they would ever consider doubt to be a sin.
0: Yeah. Uh, let me, and yet, let, let, me, let me just ask you a real quick question. So, um, the, uh, okay, so he he was the the recipient of of, uh, of a vision or no no
2: Thomas Livius was not he was referring to uh, to uh, Anne Catherine yeah, Emmerich yeah, who received right. a vision in
0: 1823. And, just, and so he just, actually yeah yeah let me let me uh, let me just throw this this little caveat in there just to be clear for our listeners uh if 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 uh, you know if these apparitions really did take place and they're not fabrications both tim Kaufman and i would would strongly take the position that they are demonic in nature that they are not um so when brother Kaufman says something um you know appeared or whatever uh we we would both say that those were that the that was a a demonic apparition masquerading as um as Mary, in order to deceive people. Am I right on that, Tim? You you would agree oh, with me on that? You're absolutely right. In fact, okay. I,
2: I would, uh, you know, my position is that these are very real and they do occur and they're demonic. Yeah, same uh, here. And, and my point here is only that uh, that Livius, Father Livius, struggling with the evidence that he finds in the early church. Has to rely on an apparition <laughs> Mary to feel better yeah. about these early church fathers saying that Mary and, doubted, but it's very clear it, in the context that they thought their doubt was sin; otherwise, the cross was right. not necessary to cleanse her of it. So,
0: right, and and you know it, we're not going to get into it today because we're pressed for time. And <laughs> but I am I, I'm really wanting to do uh, an episode or a bunch of episodes actually on. On the apparitions of Mother Mary, because you've pointed out in your writing that there is a, a direct correlation between the apparitions of Mother Mary and the the, uh, the the way that the doctrines of Mary have evolved throughout the the ages and throughout the Church, uh, the, the Roman the Roman Catholic Church that is, and a lot of times the the apparitions will come and substantiate uh, heretical views of Mary, and so the two are are very much they, they go hand in hand and uh you know we will be getting into that in uh, in later episodes I mean uh Tim Kaufman has gosh, he has so much to say about about these issues so uh you know just just hang in there we we can't get to everything uh all at once, but uh all right Tim, sorry for the little uh hijacking the show there, let's go ahead and continue.
2: Oh no that that's absolutely absolutely fine this uh, this is a a fun conversation to have and very interesting of course so um so let's let's move on i want to go to the next scriptural verse interpreted by one of the church fathers we're back to john chrysostom he, he lived from 349 to 407 ad and again i want you to think about if what john chrysostom is saying is consistent with a universal widely held belief that Mary was preserved from the stain and inclination towards sin at the moment of her conception. Just think about that. Cause that's what we were promised by Pius the ninth that the church fathers East and West had all believed this. And so just keep in mind that Tertullian would be considered Western and John Chrysostom would be considered Eastern. He's from Antioch. Uh, so, so let's just, and, and we'll get into a little bit from Tertullian in a little bit, but um, the, um, John Chrysostom on this is the wedding at Cana John 2 verses 1 to 11. This is the moment that Roman Catholics often appeal to in scriptures that Mary commanded Jesus to do something and he obeyed, but go back and read the text and there's never a command from Mary to Jesus. There's only a command for Mary to the, to the servants at the wedding. But here's the thing is that Mary intervened in a place that, uh, Chrysostom didn't think that it was appropriate for her to intervene. And he considered her, uh, her uh, intervention to be sinful. and Jesus had to correct her of saying this. This is from homilies on uh, on uh, this is actually homilies on Matthew, but he's referring to uh, to Mary uh, in that event. He said uh, he both when he corrected her, he both healed the disease of vainglory and rendered the due honor to his mother. So it's interesting here. See, Protestants would take the position that you know, Jesus honored his mother, but that doesn't mean that. Uh, and so and here John um, John says that by rebuking Mary, he healed the disease of vainglory. So imagine someone today in Roman Catholicism saying, well, Mary had the disease of vaingloriousness. And uh and it's a good thing that Jesus healed her of that. Or or Mary suffered from the sin of unbelief. And it's a good thing that Jesus died on the cross that he could cleanse her from that sin. Because this yeah. is what the early church fathers are saying. So uh, let's go to homily 21 on the Gospel of John. Um, now, th- again, we're talking about the wedding at Cana here. And and here uh, he says that Jesus was very vehement in his response when he says woman you know what have i to do with thee so uh he says uh, for th- this is where mary intervened and she wanted to do a favor for the the wedding host she said for she desired both to do them a favor and through her son to render herself more conspicuous perhaps too she had some human feeling like his brethren when they said show yourself to the world That's john 17:4 desiring to gain credit from his miracles therefore he answered her somewhat vehemently <laughs> You just think about what must go through the mind of a Roman Catholic apologist when he discovers that John Chrysostom is saying that Mary, part of the reason that she intervened at the wedding was because she wanted to show that she was so important and gained some credit from his miracles. And uh, and, and, and John actually says this when he corrects, when Jesus corrects her, he actually did it because he did not care. So he cared very much to honor his mother, And for doing good but he cared more for the salvation of her soul Hmm. okay so he says and so this was this is homily uh, homilies in John homily 21 paragraph 3 and so this was a reason why he rebuked her on that occasion saying woman what have I to do with you instructing her for the future not to do things like this (laughs) because though he was careful to honor his mother yet he cared much more for the salvation of her soul Okay, so that's John Chrysostom commenting on uh, on the, uh, the wedding at Cana. So let's, let's now move to the uh, something that happens in several of the Gospels where, where Jesus' brothers and mother interrupt him in his preaching. And this is from Matthew 12, verses 46 to 50. And, uh, when, and here uh, I'm going to quote from Tertullian on the flesh of Christ, chapter 7. And he shows that uh, Mary and Jesus' brothers are in unbelief, and their unbelief is evident. And so this is what he says. Passage, indeed, their, belief, their unbelief is evident. While strangers were intent on him, that is, listening to him, his very nearest relatives were absent. But they preferred to interrupt him and wish to call him away from his great work. When denying one's parents in indignation, Jesus does not deny their existence but censures their faults. In the abjured mother, that is the corrected and rejected mother, there is a figure of the synagogue as well as of the Jews and the unbelieving brethren. In their person, Israel remained outside to kept close to Christ within. Hearing and believing represented the church which he called mother in a preferable sense and a worthier brotherhood with the repudiation of the carnal relationship. That's Tertullian saying that Jesus abjured his mother, corrected her faults, censures her faults. She was among the unbelieving brethren outside. They're a a figure for the synagogue of the Jews in the text. I mean, that's insane. Look, it's insane to think that Roman Catholics can maintain the early church thought that universally Mary was sinless we still haven't found any evidence they thought she was sinless all we find is that she was considered sinful and uh, it's referring to that same event and this is his work against Marcian book 4 chapter 19 uh, be and quoting tertullian again besides his admission of his mother and his brethren was the more expressed from the fact of his unwillingness to acknowledge them he adopted others Uh, that he adopted others only conformed those in their relationship to him whom he refused because of their offense and for whom he substituted the others not as being true relatives but worthier ones finally it was no great matter if he if he did prefer to kindred the faith which it did not possess here he's saying that his mothers and brothers and relationship his near relations did not possess the faith of the people that were listening to him in that crowd and he refused his mother and his brothers because of their offense. Hmm. That's not that's not indicative of a belief that Mary was sinless. And um, here we're back to John Chrysostom also speaking about uh, Matthew and the time when Jesus and I'm uh, sorry, Jesus' mother and his brothers tried to interrupt him. And this is John Chrysostom homilies on Matthew homily 44, paragraph one. For in the fact. For in fact, that which she, that is Mary, had tried to do was of superfluous vanity in that she wanted to show the people that she has power and authority over her son, imagining not as yet anything great concerning him, whence also her unseasonable approach. See, at all events, both her self-confidence and theirs, since when they ought to have gone in and listened with the multitude, in other words, John is saying that Mary and the brothers should have gone on and listened, Or if they were not so minded to have waited for his bringing his discourse to an end and then to have come near. They call him out and do this before all, evincing a superfluous vanity and wishing to make it appear that with much authority they enjoin him. So here's John Chrysostom again talking about Mary and Jesus' brothers. (laughs) Standing outside and they should have waited politely until he was finished instead of interrupting, still not imagining anything great concerning Christ. And that's why... her unseasonable approach is referring to Mary interrupting Jesus in the middle of his preaching. Right. And that's uh John Chrysostom homilies on Matthew again, so. So uh, and I'll, I'm going to give a couple others here and, and then I want to wrap up on uh on, on Mary's sinlessness. The um uh, this is one from Hilary of Poitiers. Uh he he died in 360 AD and in his in his uh his uh, tract on psalm 118 um he's, he makes a side comment that mary is dust destined to undergo scrutiny of god's judgment for small faults so even though he thought that she was she had tiny faults that means that she was not sinless. Right. she might have had only false small small faults but they were faults, and that she was going to have to undergo the scrutiny of god's judgment and and here's uh, this last one from Hilary portier's is on the trinity Uh, book 10, chapter 25, here is that Hillary's construct on the incarnation does not require Mary to be sinless in order to give birth to Christ. And the reason is that in this particular passage, he says that Jesus was born of the Virgin and yet our faults might not be in, but our faults might not be in him because he is the source of his own humanity. Now, it's interesting for him to say that jesus is the source of his own humanity this is not considered a a denial of the incarnation but it shows that he did not consider himself to have have received sinless flesh from mary that's a key part of roman catholic arguments on mary's sinlessness jesus flesh was sinless he got his flesh from mary mary must therefore have been sinless because he got his humanity from her and yet here's Hilary portier saying that jesus needed a body but he was the source of his own humanity so that our faults might not be in him well why say that if mary was sinless right. well Hilary of knew that mary was not sinless uh, and that's a, that's a, an oblique reference to mary's sinfulness but it says something quite interesting that he's the source of his own humanity and if if and that explains why Hillary had no problem saying that Mary was sinful because he didn't see Jesus as taking her sinful flesh to mm-hmm. make his body. Even though, yes, genetically she got, you know, Jesus truly a child of Mary. But it's just an interesting statement by Hillary that Jesus was the source of his own humanity. So now what, what's interesting about all this, and we'll, we'll go ahead and, and, and wrap up on, on this, that Roman Catholics... Uh, the the ones the honest historians who want to just do some fact-checking on Pius IX come to the conclusion that it's really not to the latter part of the 4th century that we actually get evidence that, uh, the, that the church believed that Mary was sinless. And, and that's instead of evidence of apostolicity, that's actually av- evidence of novelty. Um, I want to introduce our listeners to the Evangelical, Evangelical Catholic Apologetics Association. I call them ECA for short. And they have a very helpful summary on the early church's position on Mary and her Immaculate Conception. And it's called uh, The Immaculate Conception of the Mother of God from Juniper Carroll's Mariology and Thorne's Immaculate Conception. And so before we get into some of their statements, I want to, to highlight their sources. Juniper Carroll lived from 1911 to 1990. And uh, William Bernard Ullathorne lived from 1806 to 1889. Uh, Juniper Carroll was the founder of the Mariological Society of America. And for his exhaustive work in Mariology, he was awarded the Marian Library Medal in 1957. He also published a three-volume set called Mariology from 1955 to 1961, which is the focus of the ECA Ministry Summary on the Immaculate Conception. Now, Ullathorne was a Roman Catholic Archbishop. An English pre- prelate who held high offices in the Roman Catholic Church during the 19th century and was the first Roman Catholic bishop of the Diocese of Birmingham in England. Now, these are not uh, these are not illiterate, uneducated um, uh, idiots. These men are well studied, intelligent Roman Catholic men, mm-hmm. priests prelates archbishops that sort of thing and this is what they had to say about the early church's belief about the sinlessness of mary we'll start with so many people try to find some evidence of sinlessness in mary by deferring to hippolytus who died in 235 a.d and they they handle this very uh, in a very scholarly objective fashion they say does hippolytus use of hagios as a rather vague laudatory epithet for mary uh, is it used as a title of dignity or does it imply moral excellence you know, in other words they're asking the question yes hippolytus used the word hagios in reference to mary but does that mean hippolytus thought that she was sinless and they answer they say the answer must in the state of the evidence be a confession of ignorance they can't say for sure that Hippolytus really was saying that Mary was sinless. So we go to uh, uh, Irenaeus, early 2nd century. He died, in two, uh, uh, he died in 202 AD. This is what they say about whether or not Irenaeus can be construed to say that Mary was sinless. They say, regrettably, Irenaeus' insight into the second or new Eve is not paralleled by any conclusion in the text with respect to the f- state of her soul prior to her fiat, that is when she said, let it be done to me according to thy will. Did the Antonicene fathers glimpse a further consequence from the analogy and indication of Mary's sanctity? Um, say, who could possibly give a certain answer one way or the other? They just throw up their hands. The, the, the one, when Roman Catholics try to prove Mary's sinlessness before Nicaea, the wall of mm-hmm. silence where there just isn't anybody talking about Mary's sinlessness and the fact is Roman Catholics Roman Catholicism Steve Ray Scott Hahn um, and, and I'll say uh, Carol and Ulla Thorne who we just cited from evangelical Catholic apologetics they know very well that there just isn't any evidence in the early church for Mary's sinlessness and what there is evidence for is Mary's sinfulness and right. So so I want I want our listeners to remember what Pius IX claimed in, in Enbulus Deus, the infallible proclamation that both the Eastern and Western Church forcibly testify to Mary's sin, sinlessness. And the fact is it's the exact opposite. They testified over her sinfulness and that she was an obstruction obstructionist. She intervened in Christ's ministry sometimes to gain credit she had uh she suffered from vainglory she was a figure for the synagogue of the jews she was she had unbelief that had to be corrected uh not through an immaculate conception but at the cross and it was not until after the cross that that swift healing came to mary it's not like he went backwards in time all the way to the moment of her conception so in the west this is from uh this is from juniper Carroll and olaf ola, ola thorne as uh as Uh, being cited by ECA this is what they have to say about the Western Church before Nicaea one of the most perplexing problems in patristic Mariology revolves about Mary's Holiness the issue becomes complex in that it involves an aspect of Mary's sanctity uh, Mary's sanctity acute for the contemporary Christian the state of Mary's soul at the moment of her Conception from the close of the apostolic age to the Council of Nicaea in 325 AD, the literary heritage of Western Christianity contains so remarkably little on the theme of Our Lady's holiness that a pointed question is inevitable. Was the pre-Nicene West even conscious of the problem? <laughs> right. And, you know, the, the only, there's no problem except in the Roman Catholic doctrine. That's the problem. Right. The pre-Nicene West was fully aware of Mary's sinfulness. This is what they have to say about the Eastern Church. Between Nicaea and Ephesus, Marian theology makes scant progress in the East. Before the Council of Ephesus in 431 AD, Eastern theology is apparently unaware of a problem in this regard. Where the literature touches on the sanctity of Mary, it does so for them bleakly in passing. With a disinterest which is disconcerting and at times a familiarity familiarity which borders on discourtesy think about that think about they're saying we went looking for evidence that what Pius the knight said was actually true and we just couldn't find the data yeah what's interesting about the church uh, up up until the time when uh, when Roman Catholicism actually claimed that Mary was sinless, with the problem of Mary's holiness in a way that was altogether inconsistent with what Roman Catholicism would eventually claim. Roman Catholic Encyclopedia actually knows that there were people in the early church who thought Mary was sinful, and they just categorize it as stray private opinions. This is quoting from the Catholic Encyclopedia on the Immaculate Conception private opinions merely serve to show that theology is a progressive science. (laughs) Well, I tell you what, that's the theological equivalent of the wizard telling Dorothy not to look at the man behind the curtain. Pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. Don't look at the data. Don't look at the evidence. Just trust us on this. Mary was sinless. And all the things from John Chrysostom, Origen, Basil, Cyril, Tertullian, all stray private opinion and that just shows that theology is a progressive science and well yeah. it didn't actually progress to the point of Mary being sinless until the latter part of the fourth century and that's what the scholars say and I'm, again I'm quoting from uh, from uh, Carol it says uh, a significant turning point in the Mariological consciousness of the west does not occur until 377 AD with the publication of St. Ambrose's three books on virginity attitude Ambrose the attitude of Ambrose toward Mary is something novel in Latin literature. Mm. And then he says, uh, with respect to Our Lady's Holiness, the year 431 marks a turning point for the Eastern patristic thought. Now, that's pretty interesting. It's quite a confession say, so, you know what? We went looking for evidence. Couldn't find it till the latter part of the fourth century. Uh, all those guys that did talk about Mary being sinful before the latter part of the fourth century, it's all stray private opinion. Pay no attention to it. Uh, Pius the Ninth says that this is an apostolic doctrine, and you need to uh, just accept that it. Even though we haven't found the evidence right. on this, there's a 300-year yeah. gap, and you're just going to have to take our word for it, even though all the evidence is to the contrary. And this is the same position that Scott Hahn is in, the same position that um, that Steve Ray is in. Uh, any evidence he can provide prior to the latter part of the fourth century is questioned, dubious, forgery, edited, heavily edited by Roman Catholics to make it say what they need it to say. And they can't find any evidence on the Ark. Mary as the Ark of the new covenant until you get to the end of the fourth century. And it turns out the same thing with the, the immaculate conception doctrine. And what this shows is the infallible proclamation from Pius IX. Not only is wrong, but it's an out and out lie. I mean, Pius IX knew very well that there was no evidence for the early church on Mary being sinless. And it, he left it to uh, uh, Carol and Ulithor to go back and clean up his mess and actually go look and say, well, the truth is there's no real evidence in the West on Mary's Immaculacy until 377. And in the East, we don't even get that until 431. So we're talking about fourth and fifth century is when Roman Catholicism finally finds evidence for the Immaculate Conception of Mary. And that shows that it's not an apostolic teaching at all and it's just a fraud that's been per, uh, perpetrated on the world and well it's been per- perpetrated on roman catholics uh protestants don't have to take this lying down though just point out the truth that it's a novelty from late fourth <laughs> century and it's not an apostolic doctrine
0: yeah yeah wow okay well um yeah you oh man you just you knock it out of the park like i, I uh, i'm I'm reading your notes with you as you go along and you've you just do so much you put so much into this so again thank you for for joining us uh and, and coming on uh so that our listeners can benefit from this um this is this is really really a devastating blow I can't think of how many times that I was thinking as you were talking uh them's fighting words you're <laughs> Uh, you know, because they they just hold on to this doctrine of of uh, of Mary just so tightly, and I, I remember having a conversation with uh, with somebody uh, who was very close to me, and I was trying to say, you know, I don't I don't believe that Mother Mary was was sinless. I believe that she she was uh, sinful, that she needed Christ as her savior, and um, and and I, I tried to show, in, you know, through through some Bible passages, uh, you know, my my position. And the reply that was given to me was, "Well, why wouldn't you want her to be sin uh, sinless? You don't think that Jesus deserved a a sinless mother?" And it's just just a, such a strong devotion. It's 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 a it's offensive, and it's it's blasphemous to to say these things in, in certain circles and you know I had to tell this this person you know I, it's not up to me it's not you know I don't get to decide I don't whether I want something to be true or not didn't determine whether whether or not it's actually true and um, you know I'm just
2: well, I, th- I think that's it's, it's interesting just the whole question about don't you think she deserved Jesus deserved a sinless mother I'll I'll say, well, I think then that he deserved followers who were not lepers and tax collectors. Right. And Samaritans and Gentiles, I think he deserved better than that. So let's just rule out the uh, Samaritan leper that came back and worshipped him. Let's just rule out the prostitutes that adored him. Let's rule out the tax collectors that followed him because Jesus deserves sinless followers. And this is the subtle way that Roman Catholics separate the sinners from their savior is that they try to make the case that Jesus deserves sinlessness as a condition of coming to him and coming to Earth was to cleanse God's people from their sins so that they could come to him yeah that come to God and this idea that Jesus has to be surrounded by a circle of sinlessness rejection of the cross it's a denial of the gospel and in some ways it's a denial of the incarnation because it says that jesus could only come so far and mary had to come the rest of the way right <laughs> you know that right that, that mary becomes our intercessor between us and jesus so that jesus can be our intercessor between yeah. mary and god It's it, the, the whole chain of intercession is all based around this idea that jesus has to be surrounded by a circle of sinlessness and we can't approach him yeah And as you can see from the early church, they didn't feel that way at all about Mary. And they recognized that she was a sinner and Roman Catholics are in the, in the position of having to invent a history that spans 300 years of missing data between the apostles and when their doctrines actually began.
0: Right. Yeah. Yeah. And and, you know uh, with that um, brother Tim, I, I just want to reiterate what I try to, Say a lot. I don't know if I say it all the time, but the whole reason that we're doing this is not because we're we're trying to bash people. It's not because we hate Roman Catholics. I I will say that I, I hate the system, um, because I I believe it's an antichrist system. But the people that are trapped within that system, I I truly care for. I truly love. I. We, we both have a heart to reach Roman Catholics. We both have uh, family members who are Roman Catholic. We both have uh, friends who are Roman Catholic, and the whole purpose of this is not to. I mean, you know, you look at the the political scene uh, when when people start talking about politics. You look at, you know, the, these news outlets and their platforms, and they just love to bash and. On people, they they are like Pharisees going around nitpicking at gnats and other people when they have logs in their own eyes. That's not the that's not the the attitude with which we're doing this. And you know, our our desire is that that Roman Catholics would be saved, that they would come to the knowledge of of uh, of, of Christ, um, that, that they would. That they would repent and, and put their faith and trust in, in christ alone for their salvation so that's that's why we're doing this and for for everything else that that was offensive uh to to roman catholic roman catholics my my plea is that you that you take a look at these things for yourself and that you you really consider what what the scriptures say and what, what brother Tim has, has laid out for us is that the early church believed what Protestants today believe, and that's, that's very significant because the early church, the church fathers, there, it, it's it's a, it's a common misunderstanding for a lot of uh, evangelicals and Protestants to get um, stuck at the Protestant Reformation, and Roman Catholics will try to say. You know, we, we can go all the way back to Jesus. We're believing what Jesus believed. We have church history on our side. And that's a, that's a pretty significant argument to make. And, and Tim Kaufman has utterly destroyed that argument to show that we are actually believing. Protestants today are actually believing what the early church fathers believed. And the early church fathers are actually believing what the scriptures believed and so um tim did you have anything to add to what i just uh laid what i just said yeah
2: i I really appreciate what you said that the the point here was to show that when that with addition they used the same scriptures that we do the the wedding at cana the presentation in the temple uh, mary at the foot of the cross and Mary uh, intervening and interrupting when Christ was preaching and I want to in light of what we have heard from the early church I just want to read what Pius the Knight says because what we're asking people to do if you want to be offended at something be offended at this this is what Pius the Knight said for the church of Christ watchful guardian that she is and defender of the dogmas deposited with her never changes anything never diminishes anything never adds anything to them but with all diligence she treats the ancient documents faithfully and wisely hmm. you want to be offended at something be offended at that because pius the himself knew very well that the early church did not believe what he was teaching in that uh, allegedly infallible proclamation go back and read the history it's not hate it's history it's not bashing it's the bible <laughs> this is the scriptural position on mary the roman catholic position on mary is not only unscriptural but actually is just as it's a, it's an anachronism and novelty in history that didn't arise for 300 years after the apostles
0: yeah yeah all right well we we will go ahead and close up with that i want to say thank you to tim kaufman for coming on once again uh and we uh want to remind everybody again that if you if you want to email us, that's at Semper.reformanda.radio at gmail.com. And uh, we will check everybody next week. God bless and see you next time. Thanks.
1: Looking for that perfect track for your next evangelism outreach? Look no further. At trackplanet.com we have solid biblical tracks that are a breeze to hand out. They are beautifully designed and are the highest quality tracks available. With over 80 different designs in stock and literally hundreds more available by custom order, we're sure to have just the right one for you. You can get any of our items printed with your church or ministry information or have us design a brand new tract just for you. We are committed to the solid biblical message of law to the proud and grace to the humble. Each tract is firm on the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the necessity of repentance and faith in salvation. Come check us out at tractplanet.com and make sure you use coupon code BTWN at checkout for 10% off your entire order. That's tractplanet.com, coupon code BTWN.